Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is the burgeoning composer Jessica Rose Weiss. Now her latest, and probably her breakout film score, is Amazon Prime's Cinderella, which is just released on September 3rd. She co-composed the score with legendary composer Michael Dana, who's also served as her mentor for the last several years. Somehow, Jess has managed to also release two other scores on the same day, one for the film called Afterlife of the Party, and the other for the film called Dog on Trouble. And it's kind of exciting seeing someone on the precipice of breaking out. Jess and I get into Cinderella, her mentorship with Michael Dana, as well as her as well as her time working at Hans Zimmer's Remote Control Productions, probably one of the most important institutions in modern film scoring. You can find Jess on social media, primarily on Instagram, as well as on her website, and of course you can find the same for me. Now in this interview, we just jump right into it. There is no introduction, nothing. Just bam, so don't feel like you've missed anything. I will note that, and as sometimes happens with these remote interviews, Jess's audio occasionally clips a little bit, and I've tried to resolve that as much as I can, but you can only do so much, so a little bit will be present here and again. And as I said, this is just part of the territory of doing virtual interviews. Now, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. We're such a interesting, unique art form, and we're always looking for ways to get our music out there and our voices out there. You know, it's like, we're not actors, we're not rock and roll bands, so we're a little bit unusual, and um, it's always helpful to have people who care and, you know, take interest. And That's what's so funny is the amount of anecdotes I've heard of people who are interested in film music talking with like their friends or family and the friends and family having that eureka moment of oh yeah you know what there is music in film like yes like some people it's just such an afterthought and i've heard various theories on film music you know there are some people who say oh that's what you want film music to do so it's not even noticed so it like blends into everything and others who obviously have the exact opposite viewpoint yeah Yeah. I mean, I think for the masses that don't really potentially take notice of film music, it's also probably, especially now more than ever, you know, we're kind of getting back to it. I hope we are. But the idea of like thematic writing and film music really transition into something else to your point, kind of just like a supportive layer of of a voice rather than John Williams level thematic material, you know, like that's when you can't help but no, I mean, it's impossible not to notice it when you're watching E.T. or Superman or what what have you. But I think, yeah, we're hopefully like getting back to that point in time now where strong themes and rich orchestral scores or electronic scores are hopefully kind of taking the forefront in a way. They're becoming more um, likable again, I suppose. So, And I think there's always a place for that, at least for the people who like really love film music. Because all those people grew up on like Williams and then Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings, which just kind of, I don't want to say revolutionized, but it was like such a testament to how much thematic music can go. There are people who are really working on that. But I think part of it is tones work so well, but also a lot of times composers, you don't have a long period to work on scores sometimes or you have a smaller budget. It's like, oh, you Always. can't write like <laughs> six rich developed themes in five yeah. weeks on a, a tight budget. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly right. So we're working on all those um, <laughs> setbacks, so to speak, but we figured them out. So so that, that kind of segues a little bit into your upcoming work, which is Cinderella. It comes out, I, th- I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's September 3rd. Yep. Which the actual original score occupies a bit of a, a weird spot because it's a musical. And so the score is largely interspersed in between in those non-musical moments. So it's somewhere where you don't have the room in the film to build out huge thematic elements. But at the same time, you, you're still able to weave a little bit in there, at least as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a big part of the job on this film was finding interesting ways to interpolate some of the songs into the score, as well as writing strong themes for the characters and, you know, the relationships between characters. And so this score is traditional in the sense that it's very orchestral and magic fairy tale like, but we also try to kind of root it in Ella's character in the sense that she's she's rough around the edges and she's a feminist and she's tough and so you know we also use a lot of folk instrumentation as well so a lot of guitars and dulcimers and things like that so yeah we had a really great time exploring that and to your point even though it's very it's a musical it's a jukebox musical it's so song driven we really wanted to make sure that the score also had a voice and so every time we have those moments in the film um, those themes are rich and you know, they're carried throughout the film and support the story and stuff. And so how did you, because you're, you're talking about the sound palette that you and Michael Dana used for the score. Yeah. And obviously it being a, a fairy tale and a retelling of Cinderella, and it has all these magical moments, it makes sense to use that a bit. But at the same time, the songs are very modern. And so it the whole film has this kind of anachronistic feeling as well. So how did you figure out like how much of the pop melody and instrumentation to lean into versus keeping it more Mm -hmm. traditional. I mean, that's got to be a tough balance to strike. Yeah, I mean, it was at first. And again, that's the the beginning stages of scoring a film are always exciting and nerve wracking because you're trying to figure out what that balance will be and how to um, first and foremost support the story, support the narrative and make sure that what you're doing is honest. You know, in those moments where Fab G, who's the fairy godmother, you know, Billy Porter, who's incredible, when he arrives on the scene, I mean, there it just felt there was no other way to score that moment other than make making it huge and orchestral and magical because he, I mean, I can't, no spoilers, but <laughs> he, he arrives in that fashion. So it felt very fitting to, to score it that way. But I think again, you know, Cinderella, she's a very grounded, intelligent, outspoken character. And I think it came to both Michael and I quite quickly that she needed to feel rooted that her her sound her her identity her musical identity wouldn't be a piano and strings you know it i mean all those things are incorporated but really like having a a melody on the acoustic guitar just felt like it was supportive of her character but it's always um you're always exploring those ideas and quickly figuring out what works and what doesn't so yeah we go through that a lot and you said you landed on it quite quickly but were there any avenues that you explored that you reached the dead end and were like no, this won't work at all. Yeah, I mean, I think initially we both felt, okay, 
the juxtaposition of the songs being very contemporary and pop and having a very traditional orchestral score will actually work really nicely. And we did do that. But I think, you know, when we were first exploring her theme, we did try piano and strings and her, you know, maybe her instrument was a flute. And then we went, oh, okay, this is a little on the nose. This is a little typical. Like, let's, let's rethink this one, you know? So yeah, that was definitely a good learning experience of what not to do, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's a fine line between being authentic and knowing what the film is asking for versus being a bit obvious. So that's always a big part of the exploration, you know, when you're trying to figure out. I always imagine that that's the, the tough decision because sometimes the obvious thing is obvious because it works. Exactly right. And and yeah, at some point you've got to make the choice of do we want to go for the ob- obvious that's going to work or spend time doing something a little different that when we get down to it might not work so well. Exactly. Exactly. But it's always worth exploring all options because oftentimes you land on something that is unexpected and makes your score unique and creates a different color and it becomes potentially one of the most important parts of your score, you know, what you choose, what instruments you choose to use, the instrumentation, the arrangements, like that's such a huge part of, you know, that's everything really. So um, it's a difficult but exciting process nonetheless. So So you and Michael co-composed it, working together to figure out the palette and and the instrumentation and everything else. But what was the actual working relationship? How did the two of you work together to co-compose the score? Yeah. So, you know, we had our traditional spotting session with the whole crew and Kay Cannon, who's the director, who's fabulous and um, was such a joy to work with. She's just a hoot. She's incredible. And so after we had the spotting session, you know, Michael and I got to work and we um, discussed themes and, you know, who needs what. And we kind of assigned themes to each other. And it's a bit of a tennis match, you know, you keep passing it back and forth. And yeah, it was really collaborative. He's so supportive. And he was definitely open to a lot of different ideas. And, and he's such a legend. He's been doing this for 100 years, you know, so (laughs) I, I really trust his opinion. And, um, and so it was really an exciting process just because, you know, I'd throw a theme out, I'd play a theme on the guitar and arrange some of it and orchestrate a bit. And I'd send it over and he'd say, this is cool. I'm not sure about this. Let me try this. And he'd add something. So it was kind of like being in a band, you know, in a way, which was really fun. Yeah, that is cool. And you know, that's got to be a little familiar or comforting for you having that band mentality, because I know that's some of your, your background in addition to film scoring. Absolutely. Did you did you run into any times where you two butted heads over anything or was it all really worked together really well? We, I mean, it was very natural and I've worked with Michael for several years now um, in varying capacities. Um, and so, you know, I did a lot of additional music for him uh, for quite a while and And then we co-scored a a VR series that's going to come out, which is really exciting. And, you know, I've worked with him on so many different levels uh, that I also know his process and and I trust his process. It's very clear that it works, uh, especially given what he's built in his career. So, no, I mean, I think the differences, if any, would really show up when notes are given. 
it's always that kind of push and pull of, okay, so they want more of this and less of this. And so I might say, well, you know, should we fight for this? This is really working. And he may say like, ah, maybe just pull it back, scale it back a bit so that they can figure out if they miss it or not. So just little moments like that, dialogues like that, where that was like the worst of it. So, <laughs> you know, um, it was pretty lovely experience overall. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, I know some of the things that you'd work with him on providing some additional music were, I think it was Dog's Way Home and The Addams Family. Yeah. Having that long-standing relationship, I mean, that's got to be such a blessing in film music. How did you get into that in the first place? How did you first meet up with Michael and start that? You know, I don't know if you'd call it like a mentorship or just a composing relationship or what. No, it's a full on mentorship. I mean, I, you know, I came to LA after working in the film world in varying capacities. I mean, as a music editor, as an um, assistant to a film composer in New York. And when I came to LA, I worked with Hans Zimmer at Remote Control for a while and with Lauren Belf and all these other wonderful composers as a music editor. So I was still writing and um, trying to figure out where I was going to land. But at that time, that's primarily what I was doing. I was kind of scoring and writing music on the side, but my day gig was music editing. So I met Michael because I was called in to help assist on a film that he had scored as a music editor, as an assistant music editor to his main guy. So I met him on this film called Transcendence, which uh, was directed by Wally Pfister, um, which was 2012, maybe 2011, 2012. And then I just pursued the relationship and I, you know, I just, I love Michael's work. I always have, and I wanted to work with him in any capacity, but I made it very clear off the bat that I really was going in the direction of composition and that's what I cared about doing. And so I worked with Michael as a music editor and then as an additional composer and then as a co-composer. So I took every step so that I could prove myself and learn from him, but he's the true mentor in my life. So I'm very, very lucky. That's great. Yeah. I don't know if it's possible off the top of your head to boil it down into one or two things, but like, what would you say maybe some of the most useful advice or things that you've learned from this several year long relationship has been? I mean, it always rings true for me. Just be yourself. You know, that great Oscar Wilde quote, you know, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. I may have botched that up, but it's something along. (laughs) That's the general idea anyway. And I think that's always been very important. And Michael has always advised anyone that he's uh, mentored to be true to their voice and their artistry and um, to not try to copy him. I really value that in our working relationship. It's just about what can you learn from me? How can I help you excel and move forward and basically master your own craft? You know, don't spend time worrying about what I do and trying to copy that. You know, that's not going to lead you to where you want to go, essentially. You know, your success is going to come from your authentic voice, not copycatting mine. So that's always been a really wonderful piece of advice and something that I say to composers who are interested in my trajectory and how I got to where I am. I've always said, like, just stick to your guns, you know, your weaknesses are actually valuable and use them. I think that's such an important piece of advice, especially for a lot of younger composers growing up looking up to people like John Williams and Hans Zimmer, who obviously both have very distinct styles. I think it's not uncommon to see that and to, you know, not totally emulate it, because in one sense, 
How can you? You just can't. Right, exactly. (laughs) Right, right. But to try to. That can have its use when you're getting your feet wet. But yeah, actually figuring out, okay, what is my voice? What's my style? What's my sound? Yeah. And you're still, relatively speaking, fairly early on in your film composing career. So would you say that you've, you've found it yet? Or are you still exploring and figuring out what your sound is? I mean, I'm definitely exploring it. I think I'll always be exploring it, to be honest. Another great mentor of mine said, it's not your responsibility as the artist, as the creative to try to hear it. It's inevitable that if you continue to pursue your authentic voice and your authentic self, it will reveal itself in due time. So don't waste your time trying to figure out what it is. And I think that's really important. And I've also been told, and I've taken it to heart, that whether you like it or not, the influences that arise in childhood tend to sculpts, it shapes your voice. Yeah, I mean, I know that I've seen West Side Story more times than any other <laughs> film in history. And, you know, I have a theater background and, you know, it's that and Tchaikovsky because I was a ballerina for 15 years. And so I know that those things are kind of embedded in my system. So I kind of, I've learned to love them rather than try to shy away from them, you know, because we're all kind of thinking, how do we be hip? How do we be cool? How do we be Trent Reznor? Well, we're all not Trent Reznor, you know, so you might as well love what has made you, you and, and love what influenced you as a young person. You know, why do we, why did you become a musician in general? Why did you love music and, you know, from the beginning? So I always go back to that. I love it. I mean, it makes total sense because you can't ape someone's style that's not you. And I've, I've talked with other composers about this, of finding what's genuine. And I think even as the audience member, it comes out and become, it can be a little obvious when a composer is doing something that's, that's not them. And sometimes it's out of their control. You know, if they have a particular temp and you know, the director's in love with it and, and wants to keep that exact sound. Yeah your hands get tied. But yeah, it's it's interesting for you being able to point out here are the distinct influences that I've had. And it's funny then talking about West Side Story in particular of here you are, however many years after you first watched it. Yeah. Now, I mean, you're not yet, at least, writing the, the original music for the musical songs, but right. here you are right. in a musical. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Shocking, really, actually. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, that's kind of the beauty of this whole process and trusting it is you really never know where you're going to end up and what you'll end up doing and hoping that you don't get pigeonholed into one thing, but you keep exploring all of your musical identities, so to speak. And I'll always be interested in doing so. You know, I I really hope, for example, I love writing electronic music and I've worked on thrillers and things, other genres like that in the past. And I love doing that. So I'll continue to pursue all of them. But it is very interesting given my background that yes, my first big studio feature happens to be a musical. (laughs) You know, it it feels right. It feels very right. So do you have the interest of of taking it one step further and ever trying your hand at original songs like that, or you find doing the score or for a, a musical doing the underscore and letting someone else write the songs? No, I would definitely be interested. <laughs> yeah, I really would. I really would. And, you know, I have a songwriting background and I love that aspect of music. And that would definitely be of interest. You know, I think my focus is solely at the moment 
on composition, you know, film composition, television composition. But I also do still, I'm producing a record right now for a singer songwriter who's absolutely brilliant. And I'm never going to stop working on the song end of things as well. I really, it's a big part of who I am and what I love to do. So I'm definitely open to a musical at some stage. You can uh, follow in the footsteps of Jason Siegel's character from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> So, and I've, I've talked with a few other people who are either singer-songwriters, turn-composer, or had a, a solo career at some point as well. And some of the time they just kind of drop it off, and other times they try to keep it going. But how's that balance been for you? I mean, and then for you, you're adding on the additional layer of producing records as well. Yeah, I mean, I've really been focused on composition for the past couple years, but I'm also constantly writing songs just even for myself. I've gotten on stage in the past, in the last couple of years, just for fun and played with a rock and roll band, which has nothing to do with <laughs> what I do as a composer, but it's an outlet for me, which I love doing. And you know, some one-off songs where I've been a co-writer or a co-producer, and I'm working on an EP, finishing up an EP right now in which I co-wrote, I think it's five or six tracks with different artists um, and produced the record with another female producer named AG, who's amazing. So I just try to balance all of it as best I can. And the beauty of doing both just means that I get a reset when I've been doing a lot of film scoring, it's a beautiful thing, but you know, you can burn out and you want to make sure that you stay fresh and you stay inspired. And so when I get to go over to the other side and do the songwriting and, and producing song producing, that really does, it's a different kind of, it's a different skill set in a lot of ways, you know, and it's using a different part of your brain. And so that's really refreshing so that when I go back for the next film or TV thing, I just feel like, okay, I've exercised a lot of different muscles. I'm ready to kind of go in guns blazing. So I'm really fortunate to have that balance because I, I do, I speak with a lot of friends of mine who are composers and it's always the question of like, how do we keep this fresh? How do we still enjoy this? Like, you know, these, these seven day weeks of 10 hours a day, like it's, it's hardcore. It's not for, you know, wimps. So how do you keep it fresh and enjoy it? Well, and even with that, I mean, do you ever still get to the point where you're just like, this is too much music. I need to take a break, reset from everything musically for a little bit. 100%. I think it's so important. And um, I think for me in particular, I think actually getting out of my home, my, I've just moved into a new home and my studio is in my house. So, you know, I think actually going somewhere, doing something that's outside of this home is so important because I'm always, you know, a floor away from my rig. <laughs> and so it's really hard to just check out. I think it's a really healthy and important thing for anyone in any, in any career, you know, turning off a phone feels almost impossible nowadays. You're right. It isn't just music. I mean, it's everything. I think it's yeah. so much harder now with working from home where my living group is also my workspace. And so it's like, no matter what time or what day, work is right there. So yeah, getting away entirely is is such a necessity. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. It's funny. A big part of this job as a composer, I mean, it's not just writing music. It's the 50 emails you get every day and responding to the post supervisor and calling your music supervisor back and chatting with the editor. I mean, it's just so much of it is kind of that almost admin element, you know, 
there's so much that goes into this job. So the writing is truly the best part because it's almost like a 50-50 of just management. So taking one step further from the writing side of this and going back to Cinderella really quick. So I know that the film finished shooting in, I think, September of 2020 or somewhere around then, right in the midst of COVID still. And with it being an orchestral score, how was the recording process? We're so lucky we have other places we can go. I mean, you know, we used Vienna um, Synchron stage for this score and they were absolutely incredible. I mean, just top-notch musicians and an amazing conductor. And um, I used this guy named Jeremy Levy for the orchestration and he was brilliant as well. He's based in LA. And so we proceeded as we would in any other version, whether or not we are doing it here or somewhere else, you know, we just, we moved forward and yeah, I, I mean, it, it sucks to not be in the room with the musicians. I mean, I think like, I feel like any composer would say, yes, I mean, top three best parts of being a film composer, if not number one, is actually being in the room with the orchestra when they're playing and recording. It's just the most exhilarating experience ever. And it's such an honor to watch these unbelievable musicians play your music. It's just, I, I'll never not get goosebumps. It's just, it's kind of mind-blowing you know when you're experiencing that but we did it remotely and we we went to a studio here in Los Angeles Michael and I did and the music editor and recorded it remotely and they were fabulous and we were able to kind of get everything we needed and more just doing it that way so I think hopefully not forever but given the state of the world it seems like that's going to be more common you know it obviously is unfortunate. I've seen at least some productions are able to get everyone together, but it's it looks so odd seeing videos or background stills because they're all distanced and like yeah. in your head, everyone in orchestra is just packed right next to each other. But at least you figured out a workaround that at least to film sounded just like anything else. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, we were very fortunate. And again, it always comes down to those players being incredible. And, you know, it's just trying to help give direction as best you can in that limited amount of time. But if you have the luxury of recording a, an orchestra of that size, I mean, I feel like nine times out of 10, you're probably going to get something pretty incredible, you know, and so we, we definitely did. Sadly, Michael and I have never met Kay in person, the director, you know, Kay Cannon. We, we haven't had that experience, which is such a shame. And hopefully we will sooner rather than later. But that's also such a beautiful part of the recording process is being in the control room with the director and really connecting on the material. And, you know, and they're still there to give some last minute notes if they have feelings about a scene or a cue or what have you. So yeah, and you know, we had her on Zoom and we were chatting, but it's a very different experience, you know, because it's so valuable for directors to be in the room, you know, and actually hear it live, it going down live is, is just, I think it's important for directors to understand kind of where you start and where you end up and harder to do so when it's all remote, but we're doing what we can. Right. Yeah, nothing you can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> in those situations, I'm, I'm curious, when, when the director's there actually hearing it all live for presumably the first time, in your experience, what's that reaction been like? Are they normally, is it normally a bit of a surprise for them just because it's different than what they've been hearing? It's a great question. Um, I think it, it depends on the experience of the director in the sense of, doesn't matter how many films they've made, but perhaps if they're making films where 
the scores are mainly electronic and they walk in and maybe this is the first or second time they've ever heard a full orchestra, you know, and especially playing what is truly also their music. It's not just mine. It's theirs there. I'm a collaborator there. It's, it's their score as well. I think it's pretty riveting. You know, I've definitely a best friend of mine who's a fabulous director and also used to be a musician. He, yeah, every time he walks in, he's still just blown over. It's just, it really is an incredible experience. And there are definitely times where a director may say, oh, uh, does it sound a little too big here? You know, because they haven't heard it. And so we know how to fix that issue, you know, and um, and be respectful of those notes, even on, on the stage, even during recording. So, but yeah, I feel like for the most part, directors are, are pretty elated because it's just such an, it is a magical experience of, of being in that environment and experiencing that. I haven't had a horror story yet. So, <laughs> and I've heard some, I've heard some, and I won't, I won't tell them on uh, right now, but I, I've heard about them. So I've been very lucky to have positive experiences in that respect. Good. Well, you know, and in one sense, it's too bad because I always love hearing the horror stories because it's you know, <laughs> when when things go wrong, it's always so interesting. But yeah. I'm glad you haven't experienced it. And hopefully you don't have to. Yes. You just don't want to hear. You just don't want to hear. Hey, can we play the temp when you're recording an orchestra, which may or may not have happened at some point in time. But again, our job is to go, how do we fix this situation? You know, that that's a huge part of what we do is, oh my God, these moments can be so brilliant or so terrible. And how do we stay calm and figure out a solution no matter what happens? I think all composers need to go to therapy just to kind of understand their own psychology. And I'm sure, too, on that side, you have to both develop a thick skin and just be used to hearing no and hearing rejection. I was reading an article recently about the music to 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. where Kubrick had all of his music already picked out, but then he hired Alex North to write a score. North wrote his full score, sent it in, didn't get any more notes, and then he watched the premiere and none of his music was in the film. And that's got to be crushing, but at the same time... You know, maybe something to that degree is, is uncommon, but you've still got to be not just taking notes, but the years that you go through to even get an indie feature, let alone be on a studio feature, that's just got to be years and years of rejection and maybe, I don't, I don't know if it's being dramatic, but like despair. And at some, at some point, it's got to be tough to get through it. Yeah. I mean, I always, I feel like it's, the same as being an actor in a way, like, you know, it doesn't matter. We're, we're always still auditioning. Sure. Maybe not so much if you're Hans or Michael at that point in your career, but even so, I mean, even those guys, like you have to continue to pursue this career. Like you're just starting from the bottom, essentially, you know, it's like Hans always says every time he starts a score, he feels like he's going to turn the faucet on and nothing's going to come out. I mean, truly, like he, he said that. And, you know, I remember when I worked at remote control one night, very late, I was still working and he came out of his studio and, and he looked at me and he said like, Oh, Jesse, I, I got it. And I said, what? And he went, I got the theme. And it was so incredible to see someone like Hans still have that very kind of almost childlike experience, you know, or vulnerable experience where it doesn't matter how many years you have in this career, you're constantly going back to the well of insecurity and trying to figure out how to move through it and, and find 
solutions to all of the problems, the issues. And it's pretty remarkable that every composer that I've spoken to, no matter what phase of their career they're in, always still feel a true sense of dread and vulnerability at the beginning of, you know, writing a score. It's really, it's, it's painful. It's painful, but it's rewarding in the end, or we wouldn't still be doing it. <laughs> Hearing someone like Hans even saying that, does that give you any despondency being like, oh, shit, I could do this for 40 years, be one of the biggest film composers ever, and still have that feeling? Or is it a bit more comforting knowing that both whenever you're in that situation, you know that everyone else is, and then it also, at no matter what point, like once it clicks you're going to have that elation. Yes, I would definitely say it's it's comforting without question. I mean, it just it reminds you that this art, music, it's all subjective, right? So the exploration, you better love the, the pain and suffering as much as you love figuring out the puzzle. I do think that is one of the most incredible parts of writing music. It's just, it's a constant push and pull. It is painful. It's exciting. It's important to learn how to like put the pencil down or move away from the keyboard and start again tomorrow. Like you just, you learn what works for you. You learn how to become comfortable with your own vulnerability because it is, I mean, it's very, it's a, it's a scary endeavor every time you try to start writing something new. And we could spend half of our careers just working on one score probably because we could try it a million different ways. So it's also learning when it's time to commit to an idea or it's time to commit to some kind of instrumentation. And I think it's important. It's to me, as you said, it's a comfort knowing that even those big guns are constantly going through that no matter what they're working on, you know? And the bigger the project, the scarier it is. It truly, it must be. It's the stakes are that much higher. You know, there's that much more money involved. You're going, shit, I better make this good. So it's even <laughs> more pressure, I would imagine, you know. And I think too, especially depending on what you're working on, like you take a lot of the Marvel films where they have to get the movies out in order to keep the story going. And you know that in other projects, if you just really screw it up, you might just get fired. The film gets pushed back a little bit. That isn't even necessarily available because they've yeah. got to get three more films out this year after that and two more TV shows. So yeah, I, I can't imagine that. But then at the same time, Hans is releasing three albums for Dune. Talk about the exact opposite issue, just like having way too much, which yeah. I find pretty exciting. Oh, absolutely. Having worked alongside him, he just, he loves, he loves it so much. He lives, breathes, sleeps, yeah, his whole life. And I understand, I relate, but he's really inspiring in that way. It's everything. And so I think when you're that dedicated and you work that hard, yeah, I mean, it's clearly paid off. He's earned it. He's, he's amazing, incredible. So I did, if you can talk about it, like want to hear a little bit of what the experience working at Remote Control Productions RCP was like, because, I mean, it's probably one of the most influential aspects of modern film score. I mean, you look at how many both younger up and coming composers, but also huge names have gone through there at some point, whether they started their career there or partway through at least studio space and were there for a year or two. 
Yeah. I mean, I was very, very fortunate. I was invited to go there and work alongside Bob Batami, who is Hans's music editor for many, many years. And I have, I've worked as a runner and a coffee maker and a lot of different studio environments in New York City, where I'm from. And I worked at Warner Brothers in London after having had some experience working as a, an assistant to a composer and as a music editor. And so I've done all of those different types of jobs, but at remote, because I was invited, I, I didn't ha- I didn't go through the system in that way, which is oftentimes how a lot of young composers do. And that's also very valuable. I mean, Hans always just, he's, he constantly reminds everyone, this business is about how you connect with people and how you treat people. And for me, it was truly the best education I've ever gotten in my life, the most educational experience I've ever had. And I really learned kind of through osmosis, just being a fly on the wall, let alone working for him, you'll always be learning. And yeah, it was incredible. I mean, my first day there, he was having a meeting, he was scoring the Academy Awards. So I walked through the doors and, you know, I'm sitting in the room with him and like Giorgio Moroder and Sheila E and Pharrell. I mean, it was just, it was insane. No one has this story. Like I, maybe I shouldn't be telling it, but whatever, it's incredible. But it was just working there for me was really a joy and it was a lot of hard work there's no question but it really taught me what this business is about not only did I learn so much musically but I also learned how this business works and and how important all aspects of it are whether that's file management or you know how connected you stay to your director or how diligent you have to be or how you know delivering on time is incredibly important just all of these different aspects of our business are of equal value to that of writing great music i was very lucky and i i'm forever grateful that i had that experience you know, and you'll, I'm sure you'll hear different stories from different people and everyone's experience is different, but I was very, very fortunate. I had an incredible time and I witnessed Lauren Belf becoming Lauren, you know, I mean, he was definitely already there, but I'm saying before he became Mission Impossible composer and, you know, now Black Widow, I mean, he's just incredible. And so I kind of saw him at the end of that run with Hans before he blew up and went off on his own. And it was just such an amazing thing to witness. And also like Henry Jackman and Junk like I, I was with all those cats and and <laughs> it's it was incredible and Dom Lewis and Matthew Margison it's just I really saw how much work goes into this and it's an important way to learn exactly what this career requires of a person so if you if you want to see the the truth I suggest going and getting an internship at remote control for if you're a young composer And again, that having been said, it depends what your goals are too. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of composers out there that don't have interest in scoring Marvel movies, you know, and that maybe that sounds kind of phony, but truly maybe those Sundance films are much more their speed or, or what have you. So it's just also depends what your, where your interests lie and what you want to do. But either way, if you want to learn the business side of this career, yes, remote control is the best education you'll ever get. And I think that's an interesting distinction because I'm sure people like Mika Levy or Daniel Hart who wouldn't make sense for them to ever have gone there just because they're just going to like make weird shit and that's what they're always going to do. Yes. It's going to work for certain projects and certain people like 
me are going to love it and how this won't. No, me too. I mean, you, yes, they're both incredible. Look, like Mika Levy, their music just never work in a Marvel movie. I mean, I would be so fascinated to hear it, but fingers crossed, but it's not going to happen. It would be so great if it did happen, yeah. though. That, I mean, now we're talking, in my opinion. <laughs> like, that's what I'm interested in, truly. I really value filmmakers who do think outside the box like that. And of course, we know Marvel is this huge, it's a different thing. But wouldn't it be amazing if there were a director that a huge franchise took under their wing and let them kind of really make something completely innovative and weird, if you want to categorize it as that. But I think that would be incredible. Who knows? But you're right. It's it's a tough, <laughs> a tough one. I got my hopes up a little bit, though, at least with Pixar getting Reser and Ross to work on Soul because obviously those guys are huge, but you never would have guessed that. No, exactly. Luckily, they had the safety, if you will, of having John, this incredible pianist and composer. They had that so they could kind of play a little bit and choose someone a little bit more unusual, which is fantastic. But wouldn't it be amazing if we could take it a step further and it could just be someone very unexpected and just kind of push push the comfort level? I don't know. That would be fun, to say the least. You're speaking my language because that's... Look, I, I love all sorts of more traditional or expected things, but those scores, those combinations that just surprise you. And you're like, whoa, I never expected that. Yes. Oh, I love it too. Yeah. But... First of all, I'm so glad you shared a bit of your experience at RCP because it's such an important and big institution. But at the same time, you don't hear a ton of what goes on behind the scenes. So, like, that's really cool. And that had to have been such a weird, surreal experience, both working with Hans, but then, like, that list of just other huge names. I mean, some of them weren't necessarily, like, massive at the time. But even still, like, Junkie XL, even before he was in... Film music. I remember listening to his music, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the beautiful thing. I mean, Hans has such a gift for kind of seeking out interesting voices. Like, that's really, you know, among his other one billion gifts. But, you know, he does. He really, he just, he's constantly looking for somebody unusual, someone different, someone, frankly, who has something to say, you know, and that's so important. And I think that's why those guys have continued to you know exceed probably his expectations in a certain way because luckily they're able to learn everything one could possibly ever want to learn from someone like Hans but they're still able to maintain their authentic voice you know kind of circling all the way back around to the beginning of our conversation but that is the ultimate goal I think is to be able to handle anything and work in tandem with any director and find the most interesting ways to help support and tell the story being told. And also, again, how do you maintain your own voice through all of that? You know, and I think those guys have really found a way to do so. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of other upcoming, you know, composers who are also very skilled at that. And it'll be exciting. I hope that the industry makes room for all of those people as well. And I think it is, and I think it will. Um, it's an odd time, but I'm a fan of those independent films that you speak of. And I hope that there's more light shed on those types of films as well, because we're definitely in a very Marvel-centric world right now. And I'm looking forward to kind of other stories being told and, you know, being pushed to the 
forefront. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. And I love being able to end on like a hopeful, optimistic note. So <laughs> yeah. you nailed it. There you go. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. So Jess, once again, I'm so glad you're able to join. Pleasure speaking. And I'm looking forward to the Cinderella soundtrack release, which I know that you're in Michael's soundtrack suite is the the last track so we're looking forward to be able to give that a listen on its own outside of the context of the film as well yeah and we're releasing an ost as well so that'll be available too which will be great okay awesome do you know when that's going to come out around the same time i guess i think around the same time i have a feeling i may be wrong but i think the album comes out the same day as the movie maybe i'm wrong but i have a feeling that that's true so um the original soundtrack will be probably right behind it, I would imagine. So Okay, we'll, we'll keep our eyes and our ears open for it. Amazing. Great. <laughs> Thank you. All right, well, thanks again. And I think it's still early in the day for you. So enjoy the rest of the day and the rest of the week. I will. You too. Thanks for having me.